Today, a chat with the editor of Taiwan's New Bloom magazine, Brian Hugh, about、uh, Taiwan's political situation, mainly in relation to the People's Republic of China. The discussion took place before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which obviously has ramifications for the China-Taiwan situation, because there is something of an analogy there. I'm very grateful to Brian for joining me on the podcast. For anyone not so well versed about Taiwan's unusual place in the world, a quick roundup might be wise. China's empires go way back into history, and the final imperial dynasty, the Qing dynasty, brought Taiwan into the fold in 1683, throwing out the Dutch colonizers who ruled the island at the time. When the Qing gave up the ghost in 1911, the Republic of China was born. Then they ruled China. With the nationalist or KMT leader Chiang Kai-shek mostly at the helm, through an extremely tumultuous few decades, fighting communists on the one hand and the Japanese on the other hand during World War II. Throughout that entire Republican period, the island had been controlled by Japan, who'd taken it from China in 1895. At the end of World War II, Taiwan returned to the Republic of China, but. Only a few years later, the nationalists were roundly defeated by Mao Zedong's communists, and they fled to Taiwan, where they hung onto the title of Republic of China. For a couple more decades, the world made out that China was the Republic of China, despite only Taiwan being under its control. Until Richard Nixon accepted the reality that Beijing was the capital of China, the People's Republic of China is ruled by the communists. Poor little Taiwan's been out in the cold ever since. Albeit supported by the USA, while Beijing looks on hungrily. The Nationalist Party、uh, (KMT), once headed by Chiang Kai-shek, is still a political force in Taiwan. Under Chiang, it was an authoritarian right-wing party, violently oppressing、uh, political opponents for some four decades after setting up shop on the island. But recently, the Pan Green Coalition, which has a Taiwanese identity, Rather than a Chinese identity, has been in power with Tsai Ing-wen, the president. And one of the events on this democratic journey was the sunflower movement, which Brian Hill is here to tell us about, as well as other things. So, without further ado. Very nice to talk to you.、Um, yeah, that's great talking to you as well. Thanks for coming onto the podcast. It's really great.、Mm-hmm. And I'll、um, I'll just、uh, let any、uh, listeners know that this is、uh, Brian Hugh,、uh, and he's one of the founding editors of New Bloom, which is a an online magazine、uh, founded in 2014. Is that right? Yeah.、Um, in, in the wake of the sunflower movement、uh, in Taiwan, and、um, that's probably a good place to start. So can you can you tell us what was the sunflower movement?、Uh, mm-hmm. And、uh, maybe what what about it inspired you to start the magazine?、Mm. Yeah, so the Sunflower Movement took place in March 2014 and lasted until around April 2014.、Uh, that involved the month long occupation of the Taiwanese legislature by student activists. That was in protest of a trade agreement that was to be signed by China.、Uh, this was in protest of the then ruling KMT, the Chinese Nationalist Party, which is the pro unification party in Taiwanese politics, passing a free trade agreement that would allow for Taiwanese Chinese investment in Taiwan's service sector industry. 
is fear that this would uh, lead to the deterioration of political freedoms uh, due to the fact of companies self-censoring to get into the Chinese market and so forth. This has already taken place in the media sector, for example, in previous years. And so mm. as for us ourselves, we were participants in the movements. A lot of our, us were students. And so particularly because there was not a lot on the movement in English, uh, the international mm. world did not seem very aware of what was going on then. Uh, there's much more focus on the Malaysian airliner that had disappeared, for example. Oh, right. And so uh, to really kind of drive home the point of this movement or what this generation of young people are involved in the movement were thinking and feeling, that's why we felt the need to start a magazine. Right. And um, what, what do you think was the legacy of the, the movement? I mean, did because uh, as I understand it, it was in relation to this this trade agreement that was being proposed, right? Did that trade mm. agreement, was it was it thwarted or did it go ahead in the end? Uh, it was thwarted in the end, um, though there was much back and forth regarding that. Um, that was a cross-strait services trade agreement. Right. And so uh, that didn't go through in the end, and so that was thwarted. However, uh, the issue at hand, I think, could have been sparked by any number of issues uh, regarding, for example, this trade agreement or, or other kind of cross-strait issues at hand. Um, and so I think it's kind of interesting. I just think that there was a generation of young people that are pretty concerned because of the fact that the KMT, the former authoritarian party, had returned to power at that point in time. And so that's why there was this kind of movement. I think it could have been triggered by a number of issues. The feeling was already in the air. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there was a kind of sense of crisis. And I think that sense of crisis could have led to a movement, uh, but it could have had any number of triggers. And so I think what is particularly interesting is that um, after that, there was a generation of young people that entered politics as politicians, um, you know, starting organizations, et cetera. There was this kind of generational shift. And that was one of the major effects of the movement, I think. Right. And, and since then, you've had many years of non-KMT government. So did uh, it's the Democratic Progressive Party, is that right? Um, or the Green... Yeah, green the Pan uh, Green Camp. Pan Green, yeah. So did they benefit out of the Sunflower Movement kind of politically? Mm. And is that... Yeah, that's right. I mean, from your perspective, is that a kind of... That's a bonus, right? Um, yeah, I think uh, what's interesting is that they did benefit from that. I mean, Tsai Ing-wen, for example, the current president, uh, rode into power in 2016 on momentum from the movement. And so that's one of the ways that this is perceived as having an effect. Um, so the KMT was defeated. Uh, this was also the first time that a non-KMT political party controlled the Taiwanese legislature. Uh, the DPP held the majority mm. in the legislature. And mm. so in the past, there had been DPP presidents before. There was one before Tsai, uh, Chen Shui-bian. However, that was the result of a split in the KMT that split the vote. And so that resulted in him having the most uh, votes. And so this is kind of a more consolidation of power for a non-KMT political force. Um, it can be seen as another stage in Taiwan's democratization, but it's not a you know one-off move where mm. you have a non-KMT president and it's democratized. It is a gradual process. And I think that can be seen as, as a result of that. And how does the KMT continue to try to gain support for its pos- political positions in, in Taiwan? Is, and does, does the kind of the political landscape, is it, because obviously we have um, your kind of left-right divides and your kind of, well, your liberal conservative divides. But in Taiwan, does it kind of, is the axis, is it kind of a pro or anti-China kind of axis? Yeah. And and how does the KMT go about keeping itself relevant in a country which seems to be quite not keen on on, on unification with China and anything like that? Yeah, so that's part of the issue is that the KMT has not been able to really win elections since then. Um, And so while it might gain in local elections, for example, being able to win the presidency seems pretty out of the question. And the party has also uh, suffered successive political crises internally. 
uh, particularly regarding this issue of whether you reform or not internally, what do you try to back away from your pro facial mm. message to try to win over this generation of Chinese young people, or do you just try to return to party fundamentals? Um, and so they've struggled in the years since then. And I think it is the case precisely that the main split in Taiwanese politics is not along left-right lines, but between independence and unification. Uh, the DPP itself has also backed away from outright unification, uh, mm. the, no, sorry, outright uh, independence, mm. in the sense that now it advocates maintaining the status quo. Um, this is to avoid losing the support of the U.S., which has made it clear that Taiwan will not receive support if it tries to unilaterally declare independence. Uh, China has also expressed that it would view that as grounds for military retaliation. Um, and so there's that issue um, at hand. And so kind of, you know, the DPP has tried to be much more moderate on these issues, but the KMT has really not managed to kind of change itself around. And it is a more conservative party too. And I think young people are much more progressive. Uh, for example, the KMT is more opposed to gay marriage. I mean, there were elements mm -hmm. of the DPP, which is not really a left-wing party that were opposed to gay marriage as well, uh, but it's not as strong as, let's say, with the KMT. And so I think that's one of the interesting phenomenon. Mm. And they, I guess they probably try to um, encourage people to consider them from um, like non-China kind of issues, right? Like try to appeal mm -hmm. to other issues instead of the China issue. Yeah, that's the thing. But I think that at the end of the day, oftentimes they just keep going back to that. Um, they have oh. this this issue in which that that seems to me their main uh, claim to political power, that the claim that they are the only party able to maintain stable cross-state relations, therefore um, they should be the ones that are in, in power. And so they always try to frame the DPP as these kind of dangerous pro-independent provocateurs oh, that will okay. cause retaliation from China. But the DPP itself has actually backed away from this. It's quite an irony from the outside that the enemies of the communists historically are mm. are their favored party in Taiwan, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's yeah. a very interesting political shift in that way. I think a lot of it really goes back to the fact that, uh, for example, the KMT they brought over what are now their descendants are like ten percent of the population. Uh, the you know the ninety percent that were there otherwise were either two percent indigenous or the eighty-eight percent from prior waves of Han migration. Uh, but they mm. constitute a, a privileged elite. Um, politically and economically, but after democratization, they lose some of these privileges. And so I think for the, this kind of this class of elites, they sometimes view the way to get back their privileges as to facilitate the unification of Taiwan and China. And so I think the economic rise of China also is another uh, factor that this kind of profit motive then affects their political leanings or their identification, et cetera. I mean, for example, my myself, uh, my family is all KMT. And so I've kind of seen this in my own family. And so that's kind of interesting as well. Whereas people of my generation are, are much more identified with Taiwan and not China. Um, if I didn't find China in any sense. You see the rise of exclusive Chinese identity, decline in Chinese identity, and even the decline of mutual identity, identifying as both Taiwanese and Chinese. And so, oh. yeah. You, and you say that, you, you indicate that um, the KMT is actually kind of, would almost kind of work with the communists to, you know, I mean, are you, they're not up for an, any kind of a violent um, invasion of the island or anything like that, or... Or are they up for, they're not for, up for um, a kind of unification which would lead, you know, the, the, the PRC to literally rule over the island? Uh, the uh, they kind of are. Do you yeah, think they so? kind of are. Yes. And so it depends yeah. on who you talk to. But uh, for right. example, one of the chairs they elected after the uh, Sunfire Movement, Hong Xiaoju, was a hardliner on these kind of pro-Asian issues. Uh, she tried to shift their political position from the stance of, let's say, one China 
two interpretations to what you came to be an advanced version of the uh, 19th census, uh, which is, a, which is a, a, you know, the notion one China respective interpretations yeah. to one China same interpretations. And she tried to push for immediate unification. That was her claim that this should take place immediately. And so, so they, you just they want happening. to basically put themselves out of business as a party, you know? Uh, I think they believe that they would be the ones holding political power if the CCP uh, took over, actually, in that sense. And so it is kind of ambiguous. I mean, are there, you know, do people want, do the KMT, does they want a, a immediate unification? Do they want a military invasion? It depends on who you talk to, but there are hardliners in the party that think that, yes, this should happen now. Uh, they think that China would be able to take Taiwan militarily without mm -hmm. losing too much, uh, would not too much cause too much damage, and so it might as well happen. Right. Okay. So, but obviously the people aren't up for that. And um, as you mentioned, in, um, in terms of media, there's already quite a lot of influence from uh, the mainland or... PRC. Mm. Can you explain how that kind of, does that affect the kind of media landscape in a kind of, I don't know, propaganda kind of sense? Or is it ownership? Is it economic pressure and things like that? Um, yeah, it does. So for example, uh, uh, there's reports in the Financial Times that one of the newspapers in Taiwan that is uh, more KMT leaning is taking direct orders from China's Taiwan Affairs Office, for example, in terms of editorial direction or what gets you know, published, etc. Um, as well as funding, uh, just in terms of just receiving funding directly from China. Uh, mm. One of the pro, uh, one of the more pro unification networks in Taiwan, for example, 70% of their coverage actually in the lead up to 2020 elections was about the KMT presidential candidate. So 70% of all news stories on a television network. Uh, that seems pretty crazy um, because you can't actually have that much news coverage of a candidate. Mm. And so it was getting really uh, inane, you know, just on the clouds that appear above, for example, him during a uh, campaign appearance, for example, claiming that's shaped like a phoenix or a dragon and, you know, these kind of auspicious animals. And mm. so that this represents that he has the favor of like the heavens or, or what have you. Um, so it gets pretty ridiculous at times. It can be very heavy handed, but you do have this going around. And that's one of the concerns that, uh, for example, through the media, China can affect Taiwan or that it can engender specific perceptions of China uh, through the media. And so often that, that is a whitewashed perception of China. And so, for example, uh, you talk to someone like my parents and, you know, they might view China as having democratized. They're not aware of these things going on. Uh, they mm. view China as free, a free market economy, as having basically liberal freedoms at this point and are not aware of these concentration camps in Xinjiang or, or whatever, yeah. you know, these kind of things going on. And do you see that um, that becoming a shift in people that leading to a shift in people's attitudes in the long term? And and how do you think? I mean, are we on a path towards some form of unification, do you think, in the end game? Um, I think it's unlikely because China, uh, for example, is China itself prepared for an invasion? That's a question. Uh, you would be losing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops. It's not actually that easy to just invade Taiwan. Uh, military, it's very difficult to stand a uh, naval invasion of an island uh, from a beachhead and, and that sort of thing. And so that would create massive bloodshed in China. Um, China's not fought a war in 40 years. Can the CCP weather the blow to legitimacy from losing just a generation of young people trying to take mm. Taiwan? That's a question. Uh, you also have the economic effects in that Taiwan and econ uh, China's economies are deeply interlinked. Um, and Taiwan's economy is in itself quite large. It's 20th largest in the world or something around that. Mm. And so uh, that would create catastrophic effects globally. Um, for example, semiconductor manufacturing chains. Uh, yeah. Taiwan produces over half the world's semiconductors. Mm -hmm. um, and so this would create a lot of cataclysm basically anywhere. Um, so it's a question if China can do that. But the question then is that, for example, China seems to have lost a generation of Taiwanese young people. Um, they term the current generation, for example, as the natural independence generation, but they naturally think of themselves as independent. Uh, they don't necessarily see themselves as having to declare independence even, just they already consider themselves as not Chinese. Um, and so 
what it's trying to do then when it has a generation that can, has lost and cannot win over through electoral means, it might turn towards more military means. Uh, for example, it cannot work through its proxies in the KMT in Taiwan anymore, so it might turn towards more this kind of heavy-handed approach. Um, but there's also concerns about what the next generation thinks, because although Taiwanese energy trends are on the rise, this generation has grown up with China having always been a much larger uh, political and economic force than China, might actually be wowed by China in the sense that it's bigger and better or whatever. And mm. so maybe that will affect their energy swing trends and might swing the other direction. But that's to be seen. I think that, you know, generally the pattern does seem that Taiwanese entity is on the rise. I don't think that's going to reverse anytime soon, um, even though it is a question what the next generation thinks. So that's an open question. I don't know if China will be willing to bet on that next generation that they will suddenly be more pro-China. Um, mm. But it's a question that what China does in the future. And particularly with China centralizing power under Xi Jinping, the possibility of irrational action also increases when you have one person calling all yeah. the shots. Um, they might be making you know, questionable judgments. Yeah. One of the reasons that um, some Chinese people have said to me that Taiwan would be better off uh, as, as part of China is, is basically just an economic kind of reason you know they just say oh you know taiwan's economy uh, had a, had had its good years and uh and now it'd be far better off in as a part of china um they don't really kind of um often go down the identity kind of line but mm. it seems to me that um the kind of value of democracy in taiwan is pretty well uh, established um mm. and like voting turnout is pretty high is that right mm. Yeah, I would say so. So I think that's one of those things too. I mean, it is another question. Let's say if China incorporated a territory that had recently had an experience of democracy into itself, that might actually create many issues. And so you'd have to have to put down resistance, for example. Uh, people have had a taste of democracy don't easily go back. Mm. Um, and so I think you do have this view sometimes among uh, Chinese people or among policymakers in China that the economic incentives are enough to entice Taiwan back, but that's not always the case. I mean, there's you know the tendency, for example, that when the economy is poor, uh, independence movements tend to be on the rise. That is a sociological tendency you see across the board in various countries. Um, the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, the break of that is a good example. Mm. Um, but then in terms of, for example, Taiwan, then the view is that, well, if Taiwan's economy is good, then Taiwanese entity will die down. And that is not necessarily the case. Um, and just you see that when Taiwan's economy is poor, this is not actually diminished Taiwanese energy. And the other thing that paradoxically is that the economy is actually doing pretty good right now mm. uh, because of the fact that Taiwan managed to weather COVID pretty successfully and avoid the hit that other countries had. Um, that doesn't change the fact that China is always the larger power and it always will be. I mean, Taiwan will always have a larger neighbor next door. Yeah. Um, in that sense, it's not going to go anytime soon. Um, but then that, that also is another question. Uh, I think the thing that particularly concerns me, though, is that Chinese people sometimes don't realize the human cost that an invasion of Taiwan would have on China itself. They think it would be very easy to just take Taiwan. And I think, uh, you know, everyday people don't really know about these military calculations. But I'm also concerned yeah. about Chinese policymakers getting a little overconfident there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and do you think they, they're going to misjudge the Americans' actions, too? And what, what do you think they would be? I mean, uh, the U.S. is stepping up support of Taiwan. Uh, it's very clear under both the Trump administration and the Biden administration. Uh, the Biden administration tried, has tried to be more, let's say, subtle about it in the sense that they're not trumping these actions to support Taiwan ahead of time. They're doing a low-key manner to try to reduce the uh, space for China to react, while also showing that they are supporting Taiwan. Whereas Trump has had a tendency to trump at this, make uh, yeah. it a big show, even though that sometimes would result in China reacting to against Taiwan. Um, there's also a tendency for Taiwan to be targeted by China as a proxy for America, which is dangerous, not actually directed at Taiwan itself, but just using Taiwan as a proxy for America. Mm. Um, but then the question is, you know, how would America react in the event of a Chinese invasion? There's a debate now regarding uh, America's stroke stance has been strategic ambiguity, 
not making it clear whether it would actually come to Taiwan's defense in the event of an invasion. Uh, there's calls now for a move towards strategic clarity, having a firm commitment to Taiwan in case of invasion. But there is a question if China would be emboldened uh, to take yeah. more actions against Taiwan if, if there's actually a firm commitment from America yeah. to defend Taiwan. And so that's that's a question. And so it's, a, it's still unknown. There's strategic mm-hmm. ambiguity about, well, maybe not strategic ambiguity, maybe unstrategic ambiguity about strategic ambiguity now. <laughs> it's a question if, you know, you'll see a shift or not. And America's going through its own issues with its own kind of democratic foundations, as far as I can see. And it seems mm-hmm. like um, in terms of, uh, you know, the the rivalry between two different systems, because of the sim- simplicity of the message of, of the Chinese uh, system, almost, you know, whereas the mess um, of the American system, at least um, as it appears to be, mm. it's like a um, propaganda um, opportunity for China. And it seems like um, all around the world, I don't know, maybe you disagree with this, but doesn't it seem that dem- democracy itself as a, as a kind of viable uh, political system is quite under threat? Yeah, so you do have this claim, for example, from China, um, from state media, et cetera, that America is a failed system and that China represents the alternative. And so this is the attempt to project. And I think there are some in America that will actually look at China and think, well, maybe they have it better. A lot of it is really just projection. Um, but I think particularly at a time in which America is going through a time of crisis, well, you'd look to outside and sometimes try to idealize a mm. uh, capital O other. And so that's problematic, but I think it, it does happen. China yeah. also claims to be more democratic than America. That's another uh, claim well, no, they will circulate yeah. nowadays. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's a weird thing because you get um, you're saying that you get um, these Americans who will, you know, project onto China and and kind of have this kind of envy for their system. And it's a weird thing because you get them both on the far right and the far left as um, those who kind of uh, like the fact that China is a, uh, you know, it's a uh, nationalist, almost uh, one ethnicity, a kind of... uh, no nonsense to outsiders or others within, you know, other ethnicities within the place and a uh, kind of top-down authoritarianism, kind of right-wing thing. We also get these left-wing apologists because I see I see them on Twitter and stuff and they're kind of the pro-DPRK types, the Maoists. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, the tankies, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and your uh, magazine and your kind of um, political uh, position for the magazine and stuff is a kind of, is a left-wing, mm-hmm. is yeah, a left-wing absolutely. one. So, so how do you um, make sense of those, like, you know, the socialists and the communists on the left who do think that China is kind of, are the good guys in this? Is it, I mean, my suspicion is it's a bit, it's a bit like, it's just an anti-America kind of thing. You know, yeah, America absolutely. is the imperialism and China is the other thing. Yeah, I think this has happened just directly among the Western left for quite a long time. I mean, the Soviet Union was idealized as a counterpoint just to Western imperialism uh, for decades and decades and decades. And now it is China that is receiving the same treatment. And so I think that's one of these problematic things. And I think what is then shared between the left and the right or the far right and the far, uh, far left is this Orientalism, this uh, uh, basically lack of knowledge about China that creates makes it basically into a blank slate on which to project one's fantasies, whether that be some kind of ethno-state state from the right or some kind of socialist utopia from the left. Mm. I think that's kind of problematic. And I think just learning more about China or, or educating yourself about that, I mean, it's a place that has many contradictions. Um, and so that's what I hope people come away from it uh, as, as understanding, I mean, just like any other place. But I think it's much more easier to psychologically just to, to just idealize somewhere else is better than where you're at currently as a way to basically uh, avoid these kind of issues that the world is going through. Mm. Yes.
So going back to the sunflower movement, um, mm-hmm. obviously this is quite a this is quite a big deal. You um, the the activists managed to take over the legislature right in mm-hmm. Taipei. Yeah. How did that mm-hmm. happen? And was this obviously we've got um, a year ago, American you know Trump Trump supporter Americans tried to do some might say mm-hmm. the same thing, but from a very different mm-hmm. kind of political agenda. But um, mm-hmm. h- how does it compare? Were people outraged in the same way that they are in um, uh, about the American situation, or and and how did it play out? Yeah, I guess it's a complicated question. Um, you know, sometimes you do see these weird comparisons between those two incidents. Uh, I guess part of it is that the KMT is literally the former authoritarian party, and it was overcome through the democratization movement. Um, so that resulted in the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, which came out of the democracy movement, uh, winning office for the first time. And so then there's outrage over the fact that KMT had taken power again, and it was trying to undo some of these, uh, for example, it was received an assault on democracy that they tried to pass this uh, trade bill. And this was done through circumventing reviews, uh, legislative reviews. The uh, committee head of the uh, committee that was reviewing it just declared that it was passed through the megaphone while hiding in a bathroom, literally. Um, mm. And so that provoked outrage. And there was attempts by the KMT, for example, to uh, later on, for example, to whitewash the history of the authoritarian period, just covering up the things that they did, uh, downplaying that, et cetera. And so I think that's what contributed to this sense of outrage. And I think that's why it could galvanize, for example, 500,000 people onto the street. That's like uh, of Taipei. That's that's like two, that's 2% of the Taiwanese population. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a massive movement in that sense. And so I think it did have popular support. But, you know, there was always people that also did take the view that maybe the students had gone too far in taking the legislature over. Uh, or mm-hmm. later on, there was an attempt to take over the executive branch of government, the executive in, um, which I was mm-hmm. a part of as well, actually. And so... Um, you did have this controversy, but I think in the way it wasn't perceived as kind of a small group uh, trying to just sort of take over the institution of government in the right. same way you know, the popular movement it had a popular mandate um, from society at large. And so I think that, that you see a kind of generational shift in perception of the young people that before the movement, young people received as weak and soft. Uh, the term was strawberry generation, referring to that they were soft and not like the hardy and strong, like their boomer parents. Right. Um, but then after that, there was a, the change in perception of young people that they could take control of their future and that they were willing to take risks for what they believed in. And so then they would have all these young people running for office and winning office and et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so then that really, really changed things. I think it's, it, the, the big difference is that it was a movement that did have legs in that sense. Um, rather than just this kind of kind of clownish uh, theatrical attempt to take over government, um, to overthrow the institution of government. And it's also interesting, too, the students, they did uh, try to maintain a uh, kind of sanitized image of themselves in the public. For example, cleaning up the legislators when they, the legislature, when they withdrew, um, ensuring that, for example, they were perceived as not just provocateurs or just doing drugs and having wild sex in the legislature as their right. opponents tried to accuse them of doing, uh, uh, for example. Yeah. Yes. And how long were they in there? Uh, about a month. Yes, yeah, about a month. Oh, it's quite a long time to be uh, occupying a uh, yeah. a place of such importance, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, they had to watch out for the police, trying to you know drive them out and that kind of thing. But there was also a split within the KMT actually at the time, in which there was a more pro-localization faction that was opposed by the ruling faction, which was headed by the president Mindyo. And so the uh, leader of the more pro-localization faction was the majority speaker of the legislature, and so he prevented police from actually taking action mm. uh, as a way to kind of stick it to his uh, enemies in the party. Oh, I see. And did they did they write up a list of demands while they were in there? Um, yeah, they did. I mean, just for not to pass the bill, um, also to have a future oversight over uh, cross future cross trade agreements using, uh, for example, with participation by civil society, 
um, to avoid this kind of thing in the future, also calling for more uh, participation within government. So, for example, in the demands to suppose the quote unquote black box, that this was seen as uh, undemocratic, untransparent means by which policy was being passed by the KMT. And so calling for more transparency, openness, uh, and civic participation by just not just these, these people that were elected and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, you kind of have the uh, sister movement in Hong Kong, or until recently, the um, mm. umbrella movement. Was, did it kind of come, come about at the same time? Yeah, that's right. And so there are some things that were seem to be in common. For example, the, the rhetoric that one saw in the umbrella movement of, uh, for example, keeping uh, civil disobedience, for example, just being peaceful and not provoking uh, the government or the police, etc. I mean, that didn't always work out because the government would become quite aggressive and you would have riot police and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting, too, is that the Sunfire Movement leaders and the Umbrella Movement leaders generally did know each other. Um, they had gotten to know each other in the years before mm-hmm. uh, either movement, before any of these people were famous, just because of activism, because Taiwan and Hong Kong are historically close. And uh, back then, it was possible for travel to take place, for example. Um, mm-hmm. Just oftentimes, it would be very close in age. Yes, and um, obviously the crackdown's been pretty hard on Hong Kong. That's going to freak out people in Taiwan, especially activists and journalists, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And so this is something that uh, Tsai leveraged on, for example, when she was running for re-election um, in 2020, that just, well, look at Hong Kong, this is what happens when you have closer relations with China. And so the KMT really tried to backpedal on this claim that, well, you know, for example, just their presidential candidate, uh, not too long before the movement broke out in Hong Kong, he was in Hong Kong signing agreements with the chief executive, Carrie Lam, uh, saying that, well, you know, because relations with China will economically benefit Taiwan. And he had to backpedal on that really quickly, claiming that the whole uh, one China, two interpretations thing they claim for is not the same as one China, uh, two system, for example. That there are 1990 consensus is not the same as one country, two systems. But, you know, obviously there's a parallel and one country, two systems as a political formula was originally uh, formulated to, to try to win Taiwan over. And so that didn't really work out for them. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's the only deciding factor. I think that if there had not been this movement in Hong Kong, Taiwan would still probably have voted for Tsai in the re-election. Uh, this kind of issue regarding independence or unification always comes up during presidential elections. But it did work out for the DPP's benefit that they could leverage on this. Uh, obviously in Hong Kong, um, activist leaders uh, and journalists, newspapers have been um, shut down and people have been locked up and people have had to flee. Um, mm-hmm. For your um, outspoken activists in Taiwan, do they feel um, under threat at all? You know, they could be, uh, you know, th- thrown into a van one day and, and wake up somewhere in uh, China. Uh, I think unless they travel, I mean, there's that concern. Um, you know, there's the fear, for example, that if you're going to China, you might be kidnapped or that it's more like it's more often that you'll just be blocked from going to China. Um, right. So there's that concern. But I think particularly now, I mean, in Taiwan, it does seem like a safe political environment. I mean, there are, are actions, for example, uh, there's a lot of Hong Kongers that have fled to Taiwan after the protests. And sometimes they'll have incidents like a Hong Kong restaurant being defaced because it is pro protest right. um, or an exhibition on the protest being defaced. And so you just have these incidents. But I think it's not really perceived as as much of a threat. And that's actually a big difference from even just uh, seven years ago during the Sunfire movement in which there was this fear of the state apparatus of police, uh, et cetera. The military and police are, are historically close to the KMT uh, during authoritarian times, and there's fear that this is still the case. But I think it's less concerned now with the Thai administration in power and seeming to have the consolidated power. Um, notably, the first DPP president, Chen Jiebian, was actually concerned about the possibility of military coup. But I think this is not really as a concern now. Mm-hmm. Okay, well... I think that's a really good kind of roundup of the uh, situation and political situation in Taiwan. And it sounds a little bit like we can expect maybe more of the status quo for the uh, coming years. Is, is that the kind of uh, conclusion for now? 
Yeah, I think so. I think that things seem as if they will stay this way. I mean, a big question is what China does in the future. Um, but, you know, I think that's really hard to guess. I think if things are all, all other factors are moved, I do think that the current status quo will hold and Taiwan's young people will become increasingly more pro-Taiwan in that sense mm-hmm. and increasingly distant from China. And so I think events in Hong Kong accelerate that trend as well. And so I think I think we'll have to keep an eye on there. Cool. All right, Brian. I think that's it then. Thank, thanks so much yeah. for your time. It's really great to get your uh, expertise and all the best in the magazine. Um, it was great talking. And, uh, yeah, and um, I hope for a long um, and good future for that too. Yeah, definitely. All right, bye great. for now. post on twitter uh my twitter is at smky podcast i'll post a link to a post invasion discussion uh, a post ukrainian invasion discussion that brian was in on um on the podcast called chinese whispers which is especially interesting in understanding how the ukraine russia situation is or isn't similar to the taiwan china one and what lessons each side might learn Brian himself on Twitter is at Brian Hewell. That's Brian, B-R-I-A-N, H-I-O-E, Hewell. And if you uh, like the podcast, I never say this, but if you like the podcast, uh, give it a like or, or a share or, or tell your friend about it. I don't know. And give a, a, little, a little podcast in the shadows of the internet a fighting chance. And, uh, oh, and next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you we dive into controversy a little bit more looking back to the Mao years to find out how communist China deals with scandals troublemakers it's not pretty <laughs>